Hello, and welcome to episode 72 of My Dog Will Eat My Face. Wow, episode 72. I didn't think I'd be recording this long. (laughs) Apparently, I'm just a stubborn, uh, insufferable little guy who will not lay down and die. Uh, Putting up the good fight, I suppose. So it's... uh, It's been a long road. It's been over a year that I've been recording now, as of of just uh, this last November. So it's been a year at least uh, in hospice and uh, just slowly declining. But nevertheless, I'm glad I'm still here and still recording. I would have never guessed I'd reach this episode number. Anyway, that all being said... (laughs) Uh, In this episode, I want to touch on a relatively common topic, and at first it might seem unusual for this this genre of podcasts. I want to talk about education, and more importantly, formal education, specifically things such as college degrees, and if they are or not worth it. There are so many people that do jobs that have nothing to do with their college degree. Indeed, at the end of the day, after I was in my career for some 20 odd years, I was doing something that absolutely had really nothing to do with my degree topic for sure. And that's not uncommon. And The reason why I bring this up in this podcast is it a waste of time. That's what I want to know. Did I waste my time and money going to college? And do other people waste their time and money going to college? So it's a common topic, certainly. But for me, it's a really important topic because, yes, it's all said and done. But I'd like to know if that was me wasting my time here on this earth. Because that would be really, really depressing. <laughs> so I, that's why I'm asking myself this question. Did I waste my time when I went to college? Did I waste my money when I went to college? But that's neither here nor there for what my concern is. My concern is time spent when you have so little time on this earth, why waste any time, certainly at all? But, of course, we all waste time constantly. We sit in traffic, going to our jobs. Uh, I don't care if you're driving somewhere. I don't care if you're taking a train. Still, you're sitting there on the train, probably standing up during rush hour knocking into people, getting your pockets picked, and who knows what else. (laughs) So, however you're getting to and from your gig, you know, that's a waste of time, possibly, for sure. But you can't avoid that. You have to feed yourself, so I don't see any way around that. So that's why I'm picking on college degrees and formal education in particular. Is it really necessary? And that's what I want to find out. 
So today I'm going to use myself as an example because that's the only interface I've had with college. I've never taught college or anything else. So I'm going to go through what my education was and kind of go down the line and see where it was in line with my my job at the time, perhaps, um, and where it eventually landed, you know, my last several years of my career before I was on disability, was that anywhere near the topic of what my degree was. So, I want to find that out for myself today, and I'm sure many listeners have also asked themselves the same question. So, stay tuned, because it might be something that you yourself should analyze and determine for yourself one day. So as I start off with this endeavor, let me first speak to my education and give a brief rundown of what I did. Foolish or not, I'm just going to objectively describe what I've done formally. So I've already disclosed, yes, I am college educated, but... Uh, I only do have a bachelor's degree. I don't have a postgraduate degree of any sort. I don't have a master's and certainly do not have a PhD. So I just have a bachelor's degree. And I think that's where most people stop and ask these sorts of questions anyway. So I think it's a good example just right, right away there because most people just tend to hover around the bachelor degree area. Only a few go up and beyond to the postgrads. But yes, I've got a college degree um, with some quirks in it. Uh, I've not disclosed this yet on this podcast, but I am actually a graduate from a place called American Military University with a degree in military intelligence studies and it is exactly how it sounds it's basically spy school for lack of a better word i studied how the modern intelligence agencies around the world work what they do how they do things also historical intelligence organizations, how they formed, what sort of things they did, and how they did them. Uh, Also things such as asymmetrical warfare, uh, interview and interrogation, space-based reconnaissance, uh, fighting battles in the rain or in the desert, all sorts of things uh, that you can sort of imagine. So, 
right there, that tends to be a surprise to some people. That's a pretty interesting degree. I did graduate also with honors. I, I did not graduate, what do you call it, magna cum laude, because I had one stupid A minus. <laughs> and I got the A minus of my very first semester in college, so at least the pressure was immediately vacated. I knew I could never graduate as, with straight A's. So uh, that stress was off. But as it is, every other grade I got in college was an A. I, I did very well. Uh, so um, that's for sure. I was definitely a, a, a good learner. And on top of that, I did some pre-college studies. You know, when you're in high school, you can go into advanced placements, and you can sometimes even get college credits for things you do uh, when you're not in college yet. I'm sure a lot of people know that, um, and very intelligent high school students do have that opportunity where they could go into some advanced placement programs <coughs> that are, excuse me, that are essentially college programs to where they could apply it for credits at a university. So with respect to that, I did take some coursework at American Military, or excuse me, Ameri I, I got the course, I got the college wrong. <laughs> I graduated American Military University, but I also took college uh, courses locally where I live and transferred them there. And I also uh, took some courses at the University of Maryland and also at Somerville College at Oxford University. So, you know, even though I just have a bachelor's, it's a pretty uh, high-quality bachelor's degree. I, I have it with honors and uh, studied abroad at Oxford, no less, as part of that. And, um, you know, was a very good, excellent student, I would say. Uh, my professors were all either active or retired members of the United States intelligence community. So they worked at <clears throat> organizations including the CIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency, or DIA, the NRO, National Reconnaissance Office, and uh, of course the National Security Agency, the NSA, which the running joke in my class was NSA stands for no such agency <laughs> or never say anything. <laughs> so <clears throat> my dad professors from there that were actually active at NSA uh, when I was going to college. Uh, one of my professors was working at the Defense Intelligence Agency, and he actually invited me over to have a quick meeting with him at his workspace, which was a cool idea. I was like, great, yeah, I would love to go to the DIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency, and chat with you, sure. 
So he said, okay, great. What you do is when you're in DC, you take this particular metro line, you get off at this particular stop, which I did, and when the escalators go up, at first there's gonna be a flat area where you kind of walk just forward, and then there's more escalators in front of you which go up to the street level. But he said, don't go up that second flight of escalators. To your right, there will be what looks like a service door. Just a, uh, just a no admittance, nondescript door. Go through that door before you leave the subway. So I did, and there's all these tourists going to the National Mall and other places in D.C. passing me, and I see the door. I see this just nondescript unmarked service door. I go in, and it's just a dimly lit hallway, and I think to myself, this can't be right. This is clearly just like a service area for the elevator. I'm going to get in trouble going in here. But he told me this is where to go, so I kept walking. And there were a couple other hallways offshooting, but in his instructions, he said, just keep following the hall. Don't turn away from it. Just keep following that one hallway that you entered. And as I <clears throat> continued, excuse me, I'm finding a little cold here at the same time, so pardon me as I make gross noises here and then. Anyway, he said, keep following that hallway straight on. And so as I did, occasionally I'd be passed, coming the opposite way, by military individuals. And almost all of them were stuffing badges down their shirts so you couldn't see them. They first had them as badges around their necks, and then as they were walking out, they <clears throat> were pushing it down and concealing it in their shirt. <laughs> I said, well, that's interesting. And it, I mean, there was a lot of Air Force and uh, Army personnel in full uniform, walking opposite, stuffing these badges as they started to go back to the civilian area. So no one would see that they had this badge around their neck that had on, that they had on apparently previously <clears throat> to wherever I was going. Finally, at the end of the hallway, it opens up into this very large underground room. Raised high above the room is, is a very large American flag. There's metal detectors and security guards armed with uh, machine guns on each side, heavily armed security and full uniform. And on the floor, there was a gigantic seal in marble saying the Defense Intelligence Agency. <laughs> So I approached a, a front, like, check-in area before the metal detectors and said who I was and said I was here to meet so-and-so, my professor. And he says, oh, right, he makes some calls, hangs up, fumbles around a little bit, and presents to me a little identification bag for me to wear around my neck. Now I know what those people were uh, shoving down their shirts <laughs> as they were leaving the area. 
but he presented it to me and it already had my driver's license photo on it which was interesting and my full name and everything else on there all prepared and he said just return this before you leave so they could destroy it i assume and my professor came down and he escorted me through the metal detectors into some elevators we went up uh, probably 15 stories, I want to say. And he came to a door, and there was a lock on it, but it was one of those spinning code locks. I don't know if you've ever seen them. I don't know. How to, I don't know what the proper terminology is. It's a. It's like a lockbox, in a way, but you spin these numbers on a on this metal spinner, with which could be hundreds of different com combination codes to be able to get the door to unlock. And so he starts spinning these numbers on this wheel and then dunk, door unlocks and we go through. And there we were just in a ordinary conference room. <laughs> with, you know, maybe it was a smaller one with like maybe six chairs, a small conference room, had a window. And I realized I was uh, in a building overlooking Virginia. So, it was just some nondescript commercial building, I'm sure, to people on the street. They didn't know who was in it. They didn't know who the tenants were, probably. And the entranceway was through the basement near the subway that was concealed. And so we just sat down and had a little chat. So I've had a lot of adventures uh, in the military intelligence aid agencies with the military intelligence agencies out there and all my profs or professors worked for these agencies so I had a lot of opportunity to commingle. I even met the directors of intelligence for believe it or not Luxembourg. <laughs> yes they have an intelligence agency don't laugh. Luxembourg and Austria and uh, they invited me to have a drink with them in fact and that was all good fun so uh, there was uh, a lot of fun opportunities there in intelligence school. Uh, it took me a while to graduate, though. It took me six years. And the reason why is because I worked for most of the time when I was in college. The first, when I first started college, I didn't work, but then I did, so I could pay in my own way. I'd either get scholarship opportunities, uh, other funding from third parties or just pay my way out of my own pocket. No loans. Absolutely took no loans whatsoever, no student loans. And so when I was working, a lot of my paycheck went to pay for my tuition. And since I was working full time, I couldn't fulfill a full, a full quarter of college credits. I had to take a few less classes than normal so I could well, go to work to pay for the classes I am that I am taking so that, that was my college <clears throat> experience and as I said before I graduated with honors with a degree in military intelligence studies so that's my college experience um, at least on the state side overseas was really interesting too it, it was fun to see the difference between how 
colleges were functioning in the UK versus the United States. And in the United States, you often have these huge lecture halls, profs speaking to all the students at once. They're just taking notes. There's an exam. They're very impersonal, in my opinion. I'm sure there are professors, and I've had professors, honestly, stateside that were not like that. They're very personal and hands-on, and that's great. But I think that's the exception more than the rule. The rule is a pretty broad education where everyone's having to take the same stuff and the same coursework, and you probably never have a one-on-one -on -one with your professor except to complain about your grade. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Um, <clears throat> so that's totally different in, the, in, for example, the United Kingdom where I was. It was very hands-on with your, at least where I was, with your college professor. And it wasn't a matter of lectures, notes, exam, the stateside operation of things. It was discussion, like a Socratic discussion. Um, reading, of course, and writing and discussion. It was very different uh, than the American than the American flow of things. Um, so I did have professors out there at Somerville, and they would just talk to us in a group. And sure, you take notes, yeah, but the most important thing was to learn your rhetoric, to learn how to express yourself and express these ideas and how to challenge them and challenge other ideas. And that was, that was really cool. Uh, the other cool thing is I, my dorm in Oxford, I'll just share this a little bit. My dorm was, of course, in a medieval building. You know, Oxford goes back centuries. I think, to, I think it was made in the 14th century. Uh, maybe the 15th, like, oh, you know, I can't remember, but somewhere in there. Um, <clears throat> so it's a very old setting. These buildings are, a lot of them are medieval buildings, basically. Um, I mean, I wouldn't say medieval. They're Gothic. They're Gothic style, late medieval, early Renaissance. There, that's what I described them as. Early Renaissance Gothic. That's how I described the buildings there, so... Uh, my dorm room had no heat, no central heating. Uh, it came furnished with just a bed, a dresser, and a desk. My window was into a courtyard, but I couldn't see out of it whatsoever because it was covered in ivy. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> in the fireplace, there's a fireplace in the corner, and in that fireplace slot was a space heater. So instead of central heat, you had a space heater in your room to turn on if it got chilly. Um, so very, di very different from American uh, uh, dorms. <laughs> and it, it was to myself. You got your private room. Uh, the bathroom was awful, I have to tell you this. It, it, not like it was gross or anything. It, the thing that was really lousy is they had basically one shower, one shower head. So all the guys on the floor would have to make a deal who was taking a shower and when. You know, you couldn't just go and take a shower when you feel like it. You know, it has to be your time slot because there's only one shower uh, to service our floor. <clears throat> just one shower head with, with a curtain uh, to the rest of the bathroom. So not that much privacy, but even worse, 
And this is why I hated the bathroom. There was like a, a very small window to the outside. It was almost like an arrow slit size window. And it had no glass in it, none. So it would be freezing outside. And you'd be in the shower getting all wet. And then you turn the shower off and you are just shaking with hypothermia, basically, because it's 48 degrees in the bathroom. And you're trying to dry off and run to your bedroom and get to that space heater. Um, so the bathroom was, was lousy. That, that's my only complaint. Other than that, it was very nice. We all dined in the same dining hall. Uh, very different than American campuses. And our floor had a, uh, a main service. She would come in, she'd make your bed every day and clean your room for you. I know a lot of dorms don't have that in the States. But she would come and she'd make the bed. And uh, if she caught you, you know, in the hall, she'd offer to make you some tea or, uh, you know, bring you something to eat or something if you wanted, you know. And, uh, Really nice service with respect to that, so that was good. So that being said, that long story was my uh, college, I guess, experience in a nutshell. So now I need to consider, did any of it come in handy with my career? So my first real job, so to speak, was actually as a private investigator and or a skip tracer for a business that conducted repossessions of vehicles, obviously uh, vehicles that were not being paid for according to the terms of the consumer's agreement with their lender. I think everyone here knows what repossession is. Now, with a lot of people, they, they know that they're not paying for their vehicle, and therefore they try to hide themselves and or the vehicle or their use of the vehicle. So it takes a lot of cunning uh, work to try and find these vehicles and find these people. Now, we did a lot of different things that were later made actually illegal. Uh, we would call up consumers and impersonate other individuals. This is also known as pretexting for the layperson. And we would say we were someone else, and we try to manipulate them to give their current location or be at a certain location. For example, we would get access to the borrower's credit report. And on the credit report, if you've ever seen it, it lists past employers, usually at like the very bottom or so of the credit report. If you ever disclosed your, your employer, that gets slapped down at the very end, somewhere near there. Depends on the format of the credit report, what kind of credit report you're doing. But in general, uh, a lot of credit reports have your 
previous places of employment listed in and when. So I'd look at this person's credit report. Now, this, you know, in this example, this person, no one could find him. He, he, his current address is just a P.O. box. He's, he's really shady. He knows he's not paying for his vehicle. He's just refusing to give it up. He's just, you know, basically being a total deadbeat, not paying for his car and, and just cheating the whole financial system, essentially. I mean, these are bad people, frankly. Uh, they know that they're doing this. They know that they're being harmful to these financial institutions. And you might say, well, they deserve it. They're big companies. Well, you know what? Next time your interest rate's really high on your next loan or it goes up, it's because of people like this, these people that refuse to pay. So they, those companies are forced to increase the rates on the loyal and honest people that are their customers. So they really create a lot of damage, not to the companies, but to the other consumers who are just trying to get a fair shake. So these really are bad people, so don't have any sympathy for them. <laughs> but in this example, we only had a phone number for this person. Again, we had no physical address. We could never find the vehicle. And some other PIs and skip tracers were working this case to death, and they gave up, and finally it landed on my desk. It was like a last ditch, like, here, give it to the new guy. <laughs> Let's see if he could find it. So what I did is I, I looked at his credit report, and I see, oh, he worked at, I forget the employer. Let's say Barnes & Noble, okay? I'm totally making this up. But it, it did give his employer... And it told me the year. So I called the phone number, which we did have, his cell number, so it didn't really help us much, but I called him on his cell. And I spoofed my phone number to be a toll-free phone number. And I identified myself as an individual working at an accounting firm in Chicago, Illinois. And I said, you used to work at Barnes & Noble back in 2001, is that correct? And he would say, yeah, yeah, I did work there then. I said, well, sir, we're conducting an audit of their financials back then, and it appears to us that they have withheld an excessive amount of Social Security from your checks during your employment at that company. So in order to uh, make their balance sheets uh, legal and, and to compensate for the discrepancy, they basically need to pay those funds back to the employees they withheld it from. And that includes you. So I would say you, sir, have a check coming to you in the amount of $342.58 or something like that. This individual was so excited. He just gets, you know, collection calls all day. He thought, man, my luck's turning around. I actually got a call saying, nice surprise, I'm getting $300. <laughs> That's great. And I say, where can I send the check to, sir? And he gives me the P.O. box we already had. I said, well, actually, no, no, sir. You see, it's a cashier's check. You have to sign for it. I'm sorry, because, you know, 
it's got to be cashiers. You have to sign for it. We have to make sure it's all in the up and up. So can you give me a, a location where you're going to be at a certain time even? We can accommodate you and we'll send someone out there to present you the cashier's check for you to sign for it. And he says, yeah, okay, well, tomorrow I'm going to be at blah, blah location at blah, blah time. I don't remember. Obviously, this happened eons ago. This is decades old. And I said, great, we'll take care of it. And if you have any questions, I gave him a toll-free number that would ring to my desk at the PI company. But I'd answer it as this person working at an accounting firm if he called back. Well, so he gave his actual location, and sure enough, that's where the car was. So he gave it to the tow agency. They went over there, picked it up. <laughs> picked up his vehicle because we knew where he was, expecting a check. No check came. Instead, just a tow truck to repossess his car. <laughs> And then he frantically was trying to call this accounting company back, and oh, fiddlesticks, the numbers disconnected. <laughs> so we would do things like that. That's just one example. We would impersonate people. That's called pretexting. This became illegal. It is illegal now. It was legal when I did it. So it, you know, this was before what's called the uh, Graham Leach Bliley Act, which. Uh, passed, I think, in 97, I want to say. But essentially, uh, it made this sort of thing, this act just made this sort of activity amongst other rules. It made this act sort of acting illegal. I, you can't do what we did today. And if you ask me to do it again, I say, no, it's illegal. So... Anyway, we did it then because it wasn't regulated and it was an effective way to track down dead beats. And so back to the topic. Did this relate to my employer whatsoever? Probably not, maybe a little bit. You know, I obviously studied human intelligence or uh, the shorthand for that is human and how that's done and how you spur traps, honey pots, and entrap people, and do things a little shady to get to people. Sure, you can argue that there is some crossover between what I was doing, which has been pretty shady, I admit it, and uh, a lot of human and other intelligence work. So there is some rough, maybe, uh, crossover in that job. But again, <laughs> that's now illegal, what I was doing. And then from there, I actually moved to a vendor that we used at the PI shop um, that provided us with personal information. And when I moved to that company, is really when my career took off. Before I touch base on my next gig, which is where my career took off, 
Let me share one other thing that I did at the PI firm that probably really did actually relate to what I was studying in intelligence school. There were times where I would have to follow people in their car that they weren't paying for. So, for example, we had one individual that was not, again, paying for their vehicle. This time it was a really nice, like, F-350, big truck. And they said, one, go to his house and make sure he's got the vehicle, first of all. And two, follow him, and wherever he goes, call someone, just press redial on his cell phone, say where you're at, and then get out of there. <laughs> so at about 4 o'clock in the morning, I went to the neighborhood where this guy lived, and I actually went to the north side of the neighborhood. It was like a circle he lived on. So I went out of sight of his house, and all the newspapers that people were subscribing to. This, this shows you how old this story is. They, people got newspapers back then. <laughs> so all the newspapers were on, sitting on people's driveways, right by the garage, you know, waiting for the people to wake up. Again, it's like 4.10 in the morning. So when I'm out of sight of the house, I actually go from house to house, just like four or five, and I actually steal all their newspapers. <laughs> And I'll tell you why. Then I get in my car and drive to the south side of the neighborhood where I know this individual lives. And I started to deliver the newspapers, whether they had one or not already, to the south side. But I was really careful. I didn't just toss the newspaper wall from well on the road or from the sidewalk. I would walk up to the front of the house, past the garage, and gently put it down there for them so they could not have to walk to the driveway to get their newspaper. I was a really good newspaper delivery boy that morning. <laughs> After stealing newspapers, of course. But I did this diligently, so one, it made it look to this person who I was following, if you look at this window, that I was just a paper boy, and also his neighbors, that I was just a paper boy. Because one of the goals you have to remember is I had to say whether or not he had a vehicle. I had to determine that. He had a garage with the door shut. So I had no way of knowing, but there was a window to the garage by the entranceway, entranceway to the house. So when I got to his house, I delicately put that newspaper down on it right in front of his front door. And as I did that, I looked through the window of the garage, just through the corner of my eye, and I saw the truck. Aha, yes, he does have the vehicle. So I got that confirmed. Dumped the rest of the newspapers somewhere. <laughs> got in my car, pulled it back a little bit, watching that door, and just waited there, staking him out, waiting for him to exit that door in his truck. Finally, about 6.30 in the morning, maybe 7 in the morning, it opens. And he takes the car out, and I start to follow him. He's driving on the freeway. I'm following from a few cars back behind him, uh, at least five car lanes back, you know, do, changing in different lanes. Usually I'd be in a different lane than he was. 
uh, and saw him get off the freeway and followed him again a few cars back up the freeway and saw him park in the back of a 24-hour fit, fitness store. And he went in to go do his workout, picked up the phone, pressed redial, said the car's parked in the rear parking lot of 24-hour fitness on this street. Hung up the phone, and just as I was pulling out, in came <laughs> a tow truck speeding in to, to hitch his car and repossess it as he was doing his workout. <laughs> and I got out of there. I, I got a lot of good jobs from my boss at that time. So I, I just remembered that as another example, because that actually did have a lot to do with some of my training in intelligence school. Yes, there's a lot of training with respect to following people, pretending to be you're somebody else that you're not, not trying to raise suspicions, things like that. So with, it, with respect to that, that did relate to my schooling. So that, that's a good example where there was some overflow. So I just wanted to share that example that shows, yes, again, there is some overflow. But lo and behold, as I already said, I left that job to go work for a vendor, actually, of that company. And that's, again, where my career really took off. And now I, I promise you I'll, I'll tell you about that in the next segment. So finally, where my career really took off was at a company that, unfortunately or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, doesn't exist anymore today. Uh, they got bought out by a much larger company whose name I'm not going to share because it's a common household name. So I don't really want to share that publicly. But what this company did, <clears throat> pardon me, again, I have this cold, I apologize. What this company did is it collected the personally identifiable information on every American. That is name, social security number, dates of birth, address, previous addresses, uh, family members, and all their PII, if you wish. It would collect uh, your voting status, I mean, your party affiliation, if there is one the vehicles you own, if any, the property you own, if any, and all the information with respect to the vehicle or property, and so on and so on, down to almost your favorite color. So what this company did is it collected that information from a variety of, of providers. And I assure you, this is 100% legal. And, and I'm not going to get into a fight with uh, other consumers about this now, <laughs> so just stay with me. It, it is 100% legal, and our job was to provide that data on people to deserving and credentialed customers. What does that mean? That means that this data can only go to people who are able to demonstrate 
a need to know and have a legal and appropriate purpose for the use of this data. So that's a pretty tall order for a business for managing all that data and all its customers with respect to how they're utilizing every little bit and piece. So what became necessary in this company is they needed to create a full legal compliance department to make sure that how the data is being collected is, is being used the way we said it was going to be used. Our customers are using it appropriately and that the people who we give it to are who they say they are because people will lie and say they're a bank. <laughs> I know because I did that in my last job. <laughs> and, and they would lie just to get the data. And we would have to confirm, is this really a bank or is this really a deserving uh, entity that requires this data or is this Billy Bob's bait and guns tackle shop? You know, or someone else, you know, who knows? So it became really necessary to start that department in this company. And lucky me, I was the one who was eventually selected to build that department from the ground up at this company. It was quite an incredible challenge. That's why I say my career took off from there. Because I did my job and I did it darn well. Now, how did this relate at all to military intelligence? On the face of it, none. Zero. Zip. Zilch. But as we ask people, basically, who is your daddy and what does he do? And do you have an appropriate use for the data that you're requesting? That all takes an investigative nature to be able to review what customers say they're doing, make sure what they're doing is legitimate and legal, and to make sure the customer can demonstrate that legitimacy and that legal use of the data when prompted. So it was a very tasking goal to make sure that we were appropriate, appropriately protecting and good custodians of that data. And so in some respect, especially with interview and interrogation, which I took in college, uh, that became handy and just being investigative and, and uh, trying to stop the bad guys at the door from getting access. Uh, that had a lot to do with my education previously. <clears throat> I would say, but not, not immediately, obviously, I'm not looking for Soviet submarines. I'm looking to see if this is really Deutsche Bank. You know, so that it, it, it's, there's obviously a large crowbar between those two things. But nonetheless, they're still investigative in nature. And, that, and having the appropriate investigative techniques and mindset is certainly appropriate. Uh, in fact, when I was applying for the job, they told me at this company that you're going to do a lot of things you can't talk about. Hey, that sounds familiar, just like my, uh, <laughs> my college days. <laughs> they said, are you okay with that? There's things that are going to go on where you can't talk about except with the, me and the president of the company. 
And I share with them what one professor said to me, actually, in college. And that was, he knows something is important. That is, he gauges the importance of something based on how few people know about it. That sounds a little bonkers. The more important something is, the less people will know of it and understand it. So, for example, everyone knows who Kim Kardashian is. How important is she? <laughs> is she a politician? No. Is she a huge business magnate? Oh, kinda, I guess, maybe. But frankly, she's not that important. <laughs> I'm sorry, Kim, you're just not. But then again, how many people know the nuclear launch codes? That's darn important. That's really important. And there's maybe three people that have access to that sort of data in the United States. So that's what he was alluding to. The more important something is, the less people will know about it. And another example that he laid out there, and this is what I repeated to my employer, was only he and his wife understand how close they are, how much they love each other. No matter how he explains it and expresses it to his friends, to his colleagues, they don't know how much he loves his wife. And that's so important to him that only her and him know how important that love is and how much that love matters to them. So that's an important thing that only two people really understand because it is so important. And so with respect to confidentiality and maintaining it, I was definitely right on right on script, so to speak, with forming a compliance group. Because you can say how you're credentialing people because people could then get around it, you know? If I, if I tell everyone how I determine if it's Deutsche Bank, then I'm telling bad guys somewhere how to pretend to be Deutsche Bank. I can't disclose that sort of thing. So there's definitely some overlap there. Also, with respect to interview and interrogation, people have lied to me on the phone about how they're using the data or in person, and I'd have to interview them or otherwise interrogate them to determine what the truth is. And so there's absolutely a crossover there with that respect as well. But that also leads me to really continued education because It was about that time I started to also attend every year the International Hacker Conference, DEF CON in Las Vegas. And I would go, our information security people would go. And the reason was, was to be on the up and up of what hackers are doing to break into companies. And obviously we wanted to know that because we obviously had sensitive data on millions of Americans that we had to protect. So we went to DEF CON, oftentimes using pseudonyms, concealing who we are, who we worked for, 
and we're just there to learn, wearing plain clothes, you know, t-shirt and jeans. <laughs> and we're just trying to learn what the hackers were doing so we could be prepared to get around it to protect <clears throat> people's information. But of course, there are hackers that were already trying to attack our company, essentially. Uh, there were times when, unfortunately, we had uh, either one or a group of hackers coming after us very aggressively because they knew the kind of data we had, how sensitive it was. And I and a group of other people had to actively shut down certain accounts, certain access points, certain ways that we find that they're trying to break in to stop them. And we would do this until like 4 o'clock in the morning, shutting down accounts, shutting down gateways, making sure just the bad guys could not get in. And it was in real time. We would see them make the attempt in real time. We would shut it down in real time, kick them out, protect the data in real time. And so I wouldn't leave work until like 4.30 in the morning, go home for a nap, and be back in the office at 7. With customer service screaming at me because I just completely destroyed a bunch of customers' access. <laughs> but we had to. We had to to protect the data because it became compromised. Or it could have been compromised from our perspective, and we would want to take that risk. So, in my career, that was really the hiatus for me because I was protecting the personally identifiable information, financial information included, of over 200 million people and made sure none of it was breached. You hear about data breaches all the time these days. That's what these people do. There's hackers out there that are attacking these companies trying to get data all the time. Our company was by far no exception. As far as I know, in my tenure there, we stopped every single attempted breach whatsoever. No data was leaked. And that says a lot. That says a heck of a lot. Very few companies constantly say that. These days, it seems like most companies have a breach. You get the thing in the mail, it's almost like junk mail. Hi, we were breached. Hi, we were breached. Hi, we were breached. <laughs> but we took it very seriously. That's why we went to DEF CON. That's why we tried to be even ahead of the hackers. That's why I stayed up personally as a manager of a department till 4 a.m., shutting things down just as a precaution. And I'm back in the morning doing the same thing. So, <clears throat> continuing that education, which is what I would call DEF CON, even though it's informal, that was important. That really mattered. And I think that's the, the bigger thing to focus on, even if you're not college educated, but if you are college educated, I think the continuation of education in your career is really the key, at least it was in my career. Maybe, I don't know, maybe you build fences for a living and this doesn't apply to you. I, I have no issue with that. But for a lot of people who, especially people like me in my previous jobs, 
who protected the financial, personally identifiable information of millions of people. We had to be really careful and make sure we were doing the right thing. And we had to make sure that we were on the up and up and how to continue our education so we were never antiquated in our knowledge base. And I'll touch on that here in this very next segment. So as I move forward in my career, I absolutely had to maintain my education, and that is because I went forward to attain certain certifications that apply to my job and my, my career specifically. I became certified by the International Association of Privacy Professionals, where basically you get a certification showing that you are very knowledgeable <laughs> with respect to privacy laws and how law is regulated. Uh, you have to pass, and when I, at the time, I've been, I'm told since when, when I got my certification, they've lessened the severity of the requirements to pass to get the certification. But when I, when I got it, you had to sit down for two four-hour tests that were not unlike the bar. That's their words. They said that to me, the administrators, the proctors for this exam. They started out saying, don't worry. Don't worry about the test. It's, it's not going to be that different from the bar, you'll see. Because it's mostly attorneys in the room taking the test. I'm not an attorney. So I just said, oh, great, thanks. Way to psych me out right before an exam. <laughs> anyway, so I, I did the, get that certification on U.S. privacy law. And then I got another certification on compliance, broadly speaking regulatory compliance. And in both cases, I had to maintain continuing education credits. Again, referring to attorneys, they're used to that. Attorneys have to have continuing education credits all the time. So if you're an attorney, you're, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's to demonstrate you're on the up and up of what's going on in these areas because they are so dynamic. They are in experiencing so much flux. And lo and behold, it's no shock to anyone that changes oftentimes conflict one another. There are certain laws that may say one thing and other laws that completely say the opposite or something dramatically different. And that is not uncommon, especially when you start dealing with local laws and local areas and, and the granularity of the data. So it's, uh, it's, it's really complex, which is why there's a whole profession around it. That became my career, was to protect that sort of information and be an expert on what may be used, what may not be used, how it may be used, how it may not be used, how to watch for it, how to manage it, how to control it how to make sure that everything is on the up and up and there's no violation with respect to the use or access of that data or information. That was essentially my whole career. And so I think with respect to that, my, now we're going years back, my college education is, is so far behind at that point. I had really nothing to do that much with 
my job. It really doesn't. Uh, if I went to law school, that would have applied. It would have probably been, in hindsight, a much better choice, frankly. But I wasn't thinking I was going to go that direction. That's why it's so hard. If you're trying to pick your career at 18, and at least with boys, their brain's not fully formed until they're 25. You know, and, and you're supposed to make a decision that's going to matter for 40-plus years, at least, of your life. You know? And uh, you're just, the way society and the way things change, chances are you're going to make a wrong choice. More often than not, you're going to choose the wrong thing when you're 18 or 19. And just the way this, the world and society changes, I can't imagine. It's stagnant enough to make one degree applicable for all of time. And that's how things like law degrees get around these changes. They mandate continuing education. So I think that's really important. And, and if there's certifications that you can attain, and some sort of continuing education areas like well, I went to DEFCON obviously I didn't get a certification for that <laughs> but they, I'm just saying there's other avenues where it might not be a certification but opportunities to give insight into what changes are being made and how to adapt to them they might not be formalized like they are with the IAPP or sorry the International Association of Privacy Professionals <sighs> say that five times fast a.k.a. the IAPP, that's much easier to say. <laughs> it may be something like that, or it might be something totally informal and something that it is what you make of it, such as DEF CON. Maybe a cocktail party, I don't know. So I think continuing that knowledge base, whatever it may be, is probably more important than your original degree. It's just... I, it's just so unlikely you're going to choose the right thing. You're not going to be 65 years old retiring from what you studied at 19 years old. I, I just, it's just not that way anymore. The world is so different. May, there's few area, there's a few areas where yeah, it will be the same. Animal husbandry, you can get a degree in that. That's probably not going to change much unless they genetically engineer pigs or cows or something. But otherwise, yeah, that's an area where it's pretty static. It's been around for a few thousand years. No big changes. So yeah, you could probably do, get a degree there and it won't change much. But they're far and few between. <laughs> So finally, we come to answer the question, is college worth it? And was it worth it for me? Did I spend that time wisely? I think in my case, my short answer is yes, it was worth it. And I think in a lot of cases, a college degree is worth it depending upon 
what you put into it and what you take out of it. In other words, I think a college education is what you make of it. If you spend your time partying it up and not there to actually learn, and you skim by <clears throat> with C's and D's, you're probably not going to get a job in that degree, I'm just saying. <laughs> and it comes to a point, I think, for most people, even if they chose a really sharp college degree that really did apply to their first job out of college, eventually down the road, things are going to change. And it's going to come down to the point to where you're going to have to kind of handpick key lessons off the shelf and apply it to your position. So I think that's what I've done, and I think that's how I've made it worthwhile for me. Obviously, since I, I got almost straight A's, one A minus, darn it, one A minus, I, I was pretty diligent with my studies, and I did want to learn. And uh, I did use that information here and there in my career that I did learn. And uh, I was able to take away from it certain ideals, such as confidentiality, such as interviewing someone, such as investigative skills. I took these things away from college off the shelf <clears throat> and was able to apply them to my career pretty easily. Obviously, I did not learn it, or excuse me, obviously I did not go into submarine warfare and apply my knowledge of Russian subs anywhere. Nor have I ever fought a battle in the rain, even though I learned how to do that. <laughs> so there's a lot of things I learned that I, I never applied to anywhere, and I kind of hope I don't have to ever apply them. <laughs> but I think what it all comes down to is it really is what you make of it. I do think it is grossly overpriced these days because of the broad push for everyone has to go to college. So the government stepped in and made college loans that you can't even get rid of bankruptcy. That is just insane. I don't understand how that passed through Congress. They're gonna owe the government for the rest of their lives, maybe? That is just awful. I mean, that what? It's holding a gun to our students' heads, man. I'm, I'm not a fan. I'm not a fan. I'm not saying college should be free, but it certainly should not be this insane price where you're forced to basically cut off a limb and, and get... basically become an indentured servant to the government for the rest of your life with these loans. No. I I, I, I I hate that. I, I hate that that other people go through that. Uh, 
It's just, it's just sad. So, you know, I mean, that, that's, I guess that's another topic for another day. But if you take the price away, <laughs> if you take all the other aspects away, um, I think it could be made worth it if you make it worth it. With as expensive as it is now, I don't know if it's worth it. You can attain those things through other means. For example, what other people do for continuing education. My DEF CON example, excellent example. It's, attendance was $100. Obviously, I had to fly out there and all that, get a hotel, whatever. But there are other things you can do. There are conferences out there that almost certainly apply to more to what you do than anything you had in college. And I think that is something that should be focused on more so than just college, at least. And if you plan to go to an insanely pricey college and you're in a crushing student loan debt for the rest of your life. No, it's not worth it. Do something else. Get that information another way. It's not buried in a treasure, treasure chest deep under the sea. You can get that through other means. And you can put those other means, hopefully, on your resume. You're not ripping yourself off, I don't think. But... <clears throat> I made it worth it for me, at least. I'm glad I went for the experience. And a lot of people say, it's just the experience. Well, whatever. I, I do enjoy, I did get a lot of joy and a good time out of the experience. I learned a lot. But also, I was really focused on my studies, and I got a lot uh, cognitively and intellectually from it that I could apply in real life. To some extent, not 100%, but to some extent, I have been able to apply some of it in real life situations. So that's it. For me, it was worth it. Uh, would I do it again with an insane student loan of $80,000? No. <laughs> Just flat out, no. <laughs> I would find other means, thank you very much. <laughs> And, and that's a good point, though. There are other means. You, there are scholarships. There's a lot of scholarships that are out there and sponsors. And I did all that in college, too. So I applied for scholarships and got them and, and sponsors. And um, That's definitely a good way to go. So that, that's why I could afford it with my paycheck to pay the leftover tuition because it was marked down considerably because of the... Uh, the uh, the benefits uh, that I was given, the, the scholarships that I was given. So I think that's the answer. Just at the end of the day, I think college is what what you make of it.
So as I wrap up this week's podcast, I think uh, I've said all I could possibly say with respect to college, and I'm glad I went. I truly am glad I went. I've said it before many times. I've lived a very full life, and that's something that has helped to give me peace in accepting my own death. And living that full life included going to college. So those experiences that I had and some that I just shared here in this podcast were absolutely components that helped make me live that full life. And that can never be taken away from me. And I am very happy that I'm able to say I've done those things. So with that, I will wrap this podcast up. If you've made it this far through the podcast, you are one loyal person. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your listenership. I truly do from the bottom of my heart. I really do. Well, I shouldn't say that. My heart's kind of wonky. It's kind of a cheap deal. I appreciate it from, uh, I don't know, uh, the bottom of my left bicep. I don't know, something else that works. Not the heart. My heart's wonky. You don't want something related to my heart. (laughs) Anyway, I do appreciate your listenership very much. Please share it with others, follow it, and turn on notifications so you are aware of future podcasts down the road. And I apologize for having a cold this whole time, and obviously now my voice is breaking up a little bit, so I better wrap things up and go my merry way. So if you want to support the podcast anymore, though, feel free to go to patreon.com slash my dog will eat my face and feel free to drop a little shekel for this person who went to college. (laughs) I appreciate, I appreciate your, your listenership so much and ciao for now.